This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. What's up, Warriors? Welcome back to another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we are at episode... 21. 21. Wow, man. I can't believe that. I can't believe we've got 21 solid episodes and Warriors still checking in on us and and tuning in and, you know, continuing to learn and teach us about sickle cell. It's been so much fun. I mean, we've had great conversations with a lot of really my heroes. And I get to spend a lot of time with you, DRZ. This episode is special. We have a fantastic guest in the adult sickle cell director at Montefiore in the Bronx. But uh, we're going to check in with Dr. Katerina Minetti. We're going to hear a little bit about her, her journey from Catania to the Bronx and uh, what she's doing for for, um, sickle cell disease patients. So stay tuned and uh, we're going to get right to the next segment. Is that cool, Dr. Mike? Yeah, let's get to it. Dr. Mike, you know, this segment, we usually make you do quite a bit of work and then talk about, you know, words that sickle cell warriors should be aware of, they should have in their in their toolbox ready to use, things they should be familiar with. Um, you know, today's word is going to be a little bit easy because the whole episode is going to be about this particular word. The word I've got for you today, man, is ulcer. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that we talk about this because I, I think people think ulcer they think stomach ulcer, they think stomach pain, they think their stomach's bleeding or something. But ulcer is just an open sore on an external or internal surface of the body caused by a break in a membrane. So um, like a skin or a mucous membrane. So you could have an ulcer in your mouth, like a mouth sore, and you might call that an ulcer. You can have an ulcer in your stomach, um, but you can also have ulcers in your skin. And it's just the, the area is broken down. It's uh, the skin is broken down and failed to heal. And so I, I think, you know, we're going to discuss ulcers all day today. We're going to discuss leg ulcers, but sometimes people call them sores and that's a perfectly good name for them as well. I think sometimes we can have a miscommunication around that. So if somebody says, do you have a leg ulcer? They don't mean like, is your stomach bothering you? Or they're really talking about, do you have a sore on your leg that's not healing? Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to learn about this, man. But uh, you know what? Now now that we're talking, I, I I feel like I can go on a little bit of a rant. Is that okay? Yeah. Hit and it. maybe this becomes that's, our what's that's happening That's so now. uncharacteristic, Dr. Z. <laughs> Look, man, I uh, I think that this concept of not severe sickle cell disease is one that I I think requires some attention because I heard it a few times in clinic this week. I heard a few parents say that to me that I don't think we need to talk about hydroxyurea or or oxbrita because his sickle cell disease is not that bad. But you're, you know we're talking about ulcers this episode and and there's this whole slew of things that you can look at with sickle cell disease patients as warning signs that things are not going well. And, and we focus a lot on pain. We talk about pain at every visit all the time. And I'm not saying pain's not important. It's terrible, it's debilitating, it's soul crushing. But there's other warning signs that, that, that sickle cell disease is causing havoc in your body. And, and ulcers are, are one of them, right? It's something we don't talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, that warriors need to be sort of primed to recognize as, as the, their skin is breaking down on their legs. And I, I think what you're saying is really important about um, 
you know, severe sickle cell disease. And we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, I think with Dr. Estep, um, but severe, I mean, we sometimes we'll say, oh, this person has a lot of pain. They have a lot of acute chest. They had a stroke. They have a, a severe sickle cell uh, phenotype. And then we may say, oh, this patient doesn't have any pain episodes. They haven't been admitted to the hospital. Um, they don't have a severe phenotype. And I get what we're saying there, but the point you're making is so important. Even if you're that patient who doesn't have a lot of symptoms, as Dr. Smith says, the hum of sickle cell starts, you know, shortly after birth and continues through your whole life and there's damage accumulating. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything because I hear that a lot. You know, I say, you know, you could benefit from hydroxyurea, you could benefit from, or your transcranial Doppler is abnormal and we have to put you on transfusions. People might say, but I don't ever have any pain episodes. I'm doing fine. And then sometimes they go on those medicines and two months later they say, oh my God, I have so much energy. I didn't realize how bad I felt. Um, but even if that's not the case, you know, there's still kidney damage going on. There's still pulmonary hypertension developing. There's still uh, vessel damage and, and maybe silent strokes, all sorts of things that. For sure. For sure. And, and even along the same lines, man, what, what really bothers me is that once then you box Patients, once a patient self-proclaims themselves as somebody with not severe sickle cell disease, guess what? They're withholding resources from themselves, right? Like then suddenly you are taking this chronic disease that you have and further saying, I don't need any of the resources that are potentially available to me, right? I don't need, you know, already the resources available to sickle cell patients are nothing, and then you're saying, well, my sickle cell disease isn't even that bad, so I don't even need what you're offering me. Guess what? The average life expectancy of sickle cell disease is still three decades less than the rest of the United States, right? Whether or not you're having pain. And, and, and I feel like that's a disservice to patients themselves. Patients should actually say, you know what? No, I don't believe in this not severe stuff. Do everything for me. Follow everything on me. I want all of these services that people are trying to deny me. That's where I'm coming from when I'm, when I'm telling warriors out there, go into your physician and say, this is a severe disease. I'm dying 30 years younger than I should be. Do everything. I want every resource you have. I think that's so important. And I think it's a, not to be alarmist. It's not to harp on the negative things about sickle cell, but there are things we can do to make it better. And we should be doing those. And it includes all of those things you said, get in there, get all of, get all of it done. Get on, get on the right therapies. Um, you know, make sure you're checking in with all the people who might be able to help you. Make sure they're monitoring your kidneys. Make sure you're getting your screenings. Uh, make sure you're getting on disease modifying therapies when they're when they're appropriate. So I, I think that's really important, Doctor Z. I like what's happening. Awesome. Well, thank you for letting me rant. That 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 one came to me as a sort of. A... I don't know. It came out of thin air, but um, it was something that was eating me up after a clinic visit this week. And I'm glad that I was able to get it off my chest. All right. All right, Sickle Cell Warriors, we are here with another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, man, we are really crushing it with these guests these days. It's amazing. We've had a string of great guests and today's going to be another great one. The director of the Sickle Cell Clinic for Adults at Montefiore Medical Center, Dr. Katarina Manitti is a legend in her own right. And we are just so proud and lucky to have her here today. For sure. Dr. Manitti, welcome, welcome, welcome. 
Thank you, uh, Amar and Mike. It's a pleasure to be here and part of this extraordinary series. We are, of course, very proud of what we're trying to do here with presenting patients information about sickle cell disease. We are really trying to help patients inform themselves as they make decisions about sickle cell disease. And we're, we're really honored to have you here because a lot of the decisions that patients make and a lot of the knowledge about sickle cell disease, particularly in specific areas, has, has come from contributions that you've made, Dr. Minetti. And for that, we are thankful. So today we wanted to take a moment to reintroduce you to the sickle cell community um, in, a, in a way that they might not, not know you, in a, in a deeper way, in, in a way that sort of tells the story of Dr. Katerina Minetti. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's a long and convoluted story that has brought to where I am here, unexpectedly so, but happily so. I don't think it comes to anybody's surprise that I was born in this country. <laughs> and I do come from Italy, specifically from Sicily. And uh, that is relevant to the work that I do today because uh, I am not sure how many of our patients know that in Sicily, we have a large population of patients with sickle cell disease who happen to be Caucasians. And so uh, this is something that I never am tired of stressing, how sickle cell disease is not a disease of the skin. It's a genetic disorder that happens in every race. I've had patients that were Greek, Sicilian, Sardinian uh, uh, from uh, the Middle East. And, and I think this is very um, important, again, to underline. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we talk about this being a global disease in its own right. And of course, in America, it's the, it's the product of the transatlantic slave trade. And that's why it affects the Black community the way it does here. Uh, but truly, outside of America, it's, it's really a global disease. Thank you for shedding some light on that. I'm going to go back even further, even, even further. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a doctor? I uh, cannot show it on, to you on, uh, on this interview, but I do have a picture of uh, me at years, four years of age with a stethoscope. And uh, the reason is that I, I come from a long line of physicians. And to be honest with you, I had no idea there were other professions. Uh, I thought we either were doctors or engineers or lawyers and both of my parents decisions. And so that was the profession I chose, mostly because at lunchtime, and yes, in Italy, we went home for lunch, as is true. <laughs> and anyway, at lunchtime, my parents seemed to exchange these wonderful stories about their patients. And it seemed uh, like really an exciting uh, profession. And I found uh, uh, a great love for it ever since I was a little girl. I, I really never thought of being anything else but a doctor. Where, where in Italy was that? I am from Catania. Is this, you know, in Sicily. It's a town on the east side of the island that looks toward Greece. And in fact, it was founded by Greeks. And we have a very interesting uh, mythology. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys uh, listen to the Odyssea and uh, or about Ulysses. I'm sure you know about Ulysses. Yeah, yeah. Well, where I live, I am looking at the rocks that the Cyclops threw at Ulysses when he was fleeing the cave. So the mountains where uh, Ulysses was kept hostage by the Cyclops was Mount Etna, which is the volcano that 
is the the view that I see from my windows. In just to give you an idea wh- where I come from. That's amazing. And you still have a family home and go back to Catonia. I certainly do. I have a beautiful home on the beach and uh, that I love to go to, and uh, I go as much as I can. I think we should have a sickle cell meeting there. You know what, Mike? I have been asking everybody and everybody says yes. And I am uh, taking this as a challenge. We are going to make this happen for many reasons, uh, not just because of the beauty of the place, but also because uh, I think I want to bring attention to the global reach of sickle cell disease. And especially now with all the immigrants. So we in Sicily, as you will know from uh, just listening to the news, uh, we have the greatest burden of immigrants coming from Africa, North Africa. And many of these individuals carry the sickle cell gene. And then they spread throughout Europe where they end up in emergency rooms where people have never seen a patient with sickle cell disease. And I think it's creating a big healthcare crisis because you can imagine that a German doctor has never seen uh, anything that looks like sickle cell. So I do think that bringing a spotlight on this uh, problem is a very important mission that I think we should take on. Yeah, we have that problem sometimes in the suburbs of Detroit that we see doctors who've never seen a case of sickle cell. Oh yes, the same in the Bronx, uh, I, I, unfortunately. <laughs> so your, your, your road to the United States is um, interesting, right? So you finished medical school. How do you end up in the United States and where do you end up in the United States? Well, my love affair with America started very young. In fact, I came to the United States when I was 18. It was a prize for uh, having a very good uh, you know, graduation from high school. They sent me to Boston. And the reason why my mom chose Boston is so funny because she thought it was New England. So their accent must be close to the British accent. And so she said, Pretty close. <laughs> New England. She thought it was New England. She didn't know it was Massachusetts. She thought it was New England. She said, oh, they must have a good accent there. Just go there to learn English. And so I did the study at BU. And it was a program meant for foreigners that wanted to apply to U.S. medical schools, which I did. I did actually apply to college. And I was accepted at Georgetown. And then I got cold feet. And that when they gave me the price tag at Georgetown, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back home, do it for free. Because, yes, medical school is free in the country where I come from. And then come back after I'm a physician. And that's what I did. And then I got a scholarship from the Italian Ministry of, of Health to go and work at Hopkins. And I was working in bone marrow transplant because originally I came to the United States because I wanted to cure cancer and win the Nobel Prize. Those are high aspirations and I love it. I know from our interactions that you have two modes, zero and a hundred. There's no in between. You are absolutely right. Uh, Compromise, uh, it's uh, not uh, uh, something that uh, comes uh, spontaneous. That's why we love you. I know. I've been quoted as telling my my, uh, nurses in oncology that we're refusing uh, to give transfusion to a sickle cell patient, I said, Transfusion for a sickle cell patient is as important as chemo 
for a Ewing sarcoma. Go ahead and give my transfusion. Wow. Yeah, no, that's so true. That's so true. So I'm, I'm actually going to back up a little bit and I'm going to let Mike drive us through this because I know that he was paying a lot of attention to your to your CV. He was He was making some notes on your CV. So Mike, why don't you drive us through that? Oh, so so you were in Hopkins, yes, uh, doing some research, and this was after med school, yes. And then and then uh, Pete's residency right there in Baltimore, in at uh, Maryland, and then stayed on at Hopkins for fellowship. That's correct. And that must have been that must have been overlap with George Dover was there. Yes, and, yes. A um, lot of lot of sickle cell stuff going on at Hopkins. Did you get involved in sickle cell at that time? Because it looked like. There was a lot of cancer stuff on there. Yes, yes, George Dover. Oh, what great memories. And uh, I don't know if you know Bill Zinkham, the head of the program there. They were fabulous hematologists. I must say that uh, my love for sickle cell had started in uh, Sicily, but uh, at Hopkins, I was most an oncologist. Where the real love came, uh, unexpectedly so, was when I had to follow my husband, who's a colonel in the Air Force, down to Mississippi. And uh, yes, I lived in Mississippi five years. It's always a surprise to many people that know me. But anyway, I lived in Mississippi and over there... I think I hear a little Mississippi accent there. <laughs> you do? <laughs> Very proud of it. And that's where I uh, realized that the vast majority of uh, children with the sickle cell disease uh, were actually dying in the emergency room of sepsis. There were no programs for them. There was uh, no knowledge uh, I'm afraid they were not considered first-class citizen. That was 30 years ago, I mean, 25 years ago. And and this is right around when props was going on. Yes, right? yes, yes, but yes, correct. So for the for the warriors listening out there, what is props? So that was, we, we talked about it in episode one, actually. It was a randomized controlled trial of PenVK to prevent sepsis in, in children with sickle cell disease. And they had to stop the study early because the control group patients were dying and the people getting the penicillin were doing well. So that's right. So that's that's when we first learned that. So Dr. Maniti gets to see this shift happen right in front of her eyes. Correct. And also as time passes, I got to see the shift of the transcranial Doppler uh, for preventing of stroke. So again, in the early career in sickle cell, I was very much focused on stroke and that uh, of stroke in, in pediatrics. And so when I was in Mississippi, as I said, I realized that nobody was taking care of them. I was part of a very posh, you know, uh, private practice, and I never saw a sickle cell patient. So I went to the health department. I said, where are the sickle cell patients? And they um, created a clinic for me. I have to uh, thank them for their visionary um, way in which they provided me with the a free space, a free nurse to take care of all the patients with sickle cell disease in the area, and the patient did come. And then I would put them on a bus and take them to Tulane, uh, where I had an adjoint appointment, you know, assistant professor at that time. And I would get their TCD uh, screen done at Tulane, and then would drive back to <laughs> go the Mississippi. That's an amazing story. And you, you were at Tulane for a while as a professor. Was that while you were in Mississippi? I would just drive, I have to say, only once a week. You know, I would just drive and, 
and come back to help in clinic. Uh, it was really a voluntary position. Uh, the reason was because I needed a connection to take care of my patients. Wow. I still, I'm stuck on the story of you putting these kids into a bus and driving them to, to get their TCDs. That, you know, I always say this, I say this to the patients, that pa the, the doctors who take care of sickle cell patients are cut from a different cloth. There's really not that many physicians that would load a bunch of kids into a bus and drive them across the state to get screening tests done. That's amazing. There was no way of doing otherwise. I mean, I, I even didn't think it twice about doing it. They needed it and we did it. And when we developed uh, our protocols for the emergency room, and I remember this funny but true story that I was having lots of kids when I was in Mississippi, and I was supposed to uh, give a lecture to the emergency room, all male emergency room physicians, and my uh, three-year-old daughter, you know, didn't want to hear it. And so she was banging on the door, mama, mama. And so I picked her up in my arms and I continued the lectures with my three-year-old in my arms. And they were like shocked. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. So you're overcoming all of this stuff. So you're, a, you're, a, you're this, you're in Mississippi. You're not, you're not getting the resources you need. You're overcoming that. You're a young investigator. You're a mother now. So how does the story continue to go forward from there? As you know, I've came to the United States to, to uh, really do research. I've always been a firm believer in research as the way to move forward because uh, I have never been satisfied with the status quo. And uh, as you all know, in sickle cell, we are warriors we and the patients, because we don't accept the status quo and we never stop to fight for our patients. And then, so I realized that I needed to go to an academic center and I knew people in DC because I'd lived in DC. So I called Greg Riemann. I don't know if you remember Greg Riemann. Yeah, yeah. Greg came here a few years ago. He was the head of the children's oncology group. That's right. And I said, Greg, I need a job. I want to move back to DC. And Greg was gracious enough. And he said, sure, come on in. Uh, and so I, I moved to uh, Washington. And so that was George Washington University? No, that's Children's National Medical Center. Children's National. Okay. That's our children's. Because I, I, they, I think most people know that I'm a pediatrician training, even though I take care of adults. I am a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and uh, um, thus my uh, interest in comprehensive care and in preventative medicine, I think is innate in us uh, pediatricians. We just apply this principle to our care all the time. So that's how I went to children back and uh, they assigned me sickle cell. And then from there I uh, continued the, my career in uh, in this field, and as be, I've been focusing more and more on, like, as I said, prevention of end organ damage and improving the quality of life of my patients. Now, you were at Children's National for almost a decade. I was, I was. And, and so tell us a little bit about your experience. This is the early 2000s we're talking about. It was an exciting time. We were, partic I participated in every single clinical trial. One thing that people needed to know about me is that I'm a citizen of the world. I collaborate with anybody. You know, they need something. I'm always happy to uh, contribute to whatever I can, you know, my patients, whatever. So I did uh, participate in the STOP2, which is a trial that looked at whether or not we can stop transfusion in the children that have an abnormal TCD. 
then I uh, participated and created the PUSH study, which is a study that studies homing hypertension and hypoxia. I participated in the SICT trial, which also talks about uh, strokes and of transfusion. And uh, the Twitch study, so all of these studies were one after the other, where they were, we were bringing the post farther and farther in our um, analysis of patients, especially with stroke and homing hypertension. So we, we've talked about some of these studies, and I, I think, you know, it's so important, these studies, because they teach us things. Like with the STOP trial showed us that we needed to do transcranial Dopplers and get people on transfusion to prevent strokes. And then stop two that you just mentioned, we had to figure out when can we stop? And the answer to that one was not after two and a half years, we don't know. But then you go a few years later and you say, can we switch to hydroxyurea? You do that twitch trial. And now we have patients who are benefiting from that. They're coming off transfusions. They're on hydroxyurea. The landmark trial was the baby hug trial in which yeah, the tremendous. safety of hydroxyurea in, in children as young as nine months of age. And I recall um, how complex and thoughtful was the consented process. So I would meet with a patient advocate, a neuropsychologist, and the family before enrolling a nine-month-old on an Adelsuria study. It, it was uh, very well done. And I think it yielded an enormous amount of information that uh, led us to the approval of hydroxyurea for children. It seems silly now, but at the time there was really a safety question. Now we know you're better off being on hydroxyurea if you're nine months old, but you had to do that study. So, so you were at National, you have a huge patient population there and you're getting involved in all of these studies. And, and so I, I think one thing you're really passionate about is patient participation in these studies. So what were, what were the things you did to, to drive that? Because I think we've benefited now from decades of um, really good research in sickle cell. And a lot of our patients now are excited to participate in research. I think there's a lot of trust there because they've been involved in research in the past or they know the benefits of research. But you know, 20 years ago at the start of this, that wasn't so easy. Tuskegee was fresh. Uh, maybe they don't know about this Italian lady who wants to put their nine-month-old on hydroxyurea. So how do you get uh, how do you get patient participation? I think what you said about trust is so important. And I always say this phrase, um, there is no research without care. So first, uh, you, we have to start for from caring for the patient, establishing that relationship with the patient. And uh, once you have established care and you deliver excellent care, then you can approach a family on, uh, uh, to participate in clinical research, which is extremely important. And I found patients always very much willing to participate. Once they understand the rationale and the goal, I found also patients very selfless. Even when a trial did not have direct benefit, many patients um, expressed the desire to improve the care for other patients. But all of this in the context of delivering care, delivering the best care, mostly I think patients need to know that you care. Yes, they need to know that you are smart, that you read the literature, you wrote all those papers, 
But to me, what I found the most important thing in the clinical research is to show the patients for real that you do care about them and that the research is necessary to advance the field, that we will not have new therapies if patients don't participate in clinical trials. And because the population of sickle cell is limited, we don't have... Um, thousands and thousands of participants like, you know, in high blood pressure. So we really have to ask our patient to help us advance the field. And when you explain like this, I have rarely had a patient telling me no. And I always get frustrated when I hear that patients don't want to participate. I don't agree with that. It's not been my experience. They've been enthusiastic participants. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think some of that is because of, you know, the, all of this work that um, has been going on for decades that you've been a part of that uh, has really improved things. And, and there is that trust there. And I know, you know, we don't open a study here unless I think I would go on that study or I would put my kids on that study, you know, if I thought it wasn't worthwhile or it was, you know, dangerous and, and not worth the risk to get the answers that we need. I wouldn't open the study. And I think that's true of all of the sickle cell investigators. I think this is true. And that's why we are so different, I think, as investigators, because we absolutely would never open a study that I don't think is worth, is meaningful, and has a chance to advance our knowledge and the therapeutic options for our patients. I also have noticed throughout my career that every time I place a patient on a clinical trial, his care improves because necessarily, you know, this family will have access to, I mean, much more attention, much, much in depth. Yeah, frequent visits, everything's followed closely. And, and not only his care improves, but the cares of everybody else with that complication. So when we start to the stroke trials that you mentioned, you know, the sit, the stop, uh, the twitch, the, the, the switch study, by default, we had to create a neuroradiology uh, group to review all the MRIs and the brain MRI of all the patients, whether or not they were on the study. So by default, everybody else that didn't participate had their care elevated because of the clinical trial, because we focus on that complication. I can tell you now I'm working on priapism, uh, you know, with the study sponsored by uh, Novartis. And uh, uh, nowadays we are much more knowledgeable of the preabysm that our patients have because we ask the question, we know how to ask the question, we are focusing on it, we have a urologist that is involved. So everybody's care has improved. Yeah, that's really important. So, so you were at National taking care of all of those patients and then down the street is this giant huge research complex and you're a researcher. So you got, I got drawn to, yes. to NIH. I got to, I got to. Yeah, I yes, you know, when you, uh, children was great, but of course I was part of multi-center studies. So it was not my idea. You know, I, I was happy, happy to participate. But there is come a time that you need to spread your wings and be the initiator research and I, you know, NIH, NHLBI was there and they had great things going. And that's why I made the, the, the jump 
um, which was easy. It was in the same city. It was not really hard, but um, it was uh, a change uh, from uh, a participant to an initiator of uh, research. So I, I think our warriors have probably all heard of NIH or NIH studies, uh, but it's it's hard to picture. And so I, I'm interested to get the inside scoop here from somebody who worked on the um, campus there. So NIH is multiple dozens of um, different institutes that focus 32. on different diseases. 32 institutes. 30, 32 institutes. And so there's a couple that focus on sickle cell, National Institute of Diabetes and Kidney Disease and, and the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And a lot of what they do is what they call extramural research. They send out money to people at Harvard or at uh, University of Michigan or at uh, Montefiore or um, to us in Detroit and, and sponsor research that's going on at those places. But then they have the intramural campus. And this is probably the best research complex in the whole world. I mean, it's a, just a, a giant uh, complex with incredible incredible scientists and resources like you wouldn't believe, at least looking from the outside. And, and so you went over there and led the clinical program for sickle cell research. Yeah, I was not the overall leader. Greg Cato was there. He was actually the branch director when I was there. And Greg Cato uh, is a fantastic researcher and clinician in, um, in, this, um, in sickle cell disease. And uh, yes, it's exactly what you said. NIH intramural, it's a beautiful place, not only physically. I mean, the rooms are beautiful. The support staff is phenomenal, but it is unique that the sky is truly the limit. You know, you can focus on your research and you know that downstairs or in the next building, you can... Uh, talk to the world expert in that field. And he will not be too busy to call you back. You know, he will have time to sit down with you and explain things. And when I did, I ran my clinical trial in leg ulcer, because that's where I started my work in leg ulcer, my team had um, 10 to 12 people. And just to measure the size of the ulcers, I had three PhD grade physicists that would just measure in the blood flow with this apparatus that looked like NASA, you know, uh, um, in the room. And, um, you know, the, um, uh, how do you say, the uh, pharmacist was uh, specialized in research. So there were two or three pharmacists, one just for PK, which is pharmacokinetic analysis, and the other one just for data management. So the support team, I have to say, is what uh, I think makes the institution so great because a researcher can really ask a question and have all this help in answering the question. So I've got to ask. I've got to. I've got to ask this. I'm going to interject really quickly. You. I, I see all this work in leg ulcers, and then we can get back to the NIH and the, and the environment there. But I'm curious how a pediatrician who is at Children's National gets interested in what really is an adult complication of sickle cell disease. How does that happen? Ah, you know, they lied to me. They thought <laughs> <laughs> that I could take care of children at NIH, which is not true. There are no pediatric patients. And when I went, I, uh, 
I didn't want to do legal, to be honest with you. Okay, so Mark Gladwin, as you know, is the god of nitric oxide. And he has been trying for many, many years to find a clinical application for NO. And so the first clinical trial that we run was actually with inhaled the nitric oxide for pain crisis. You're familiar with that paper that unfortunately did not yield a positive result. So that's how leg ulcer came because one patient at the clinical center who had some uh, um, uh, leg ulcer, not a sickle cell patient, had a paste of sodium nitrite applied and had some improvement of the wound. And therefore, the, uh, Mark Gladwin and Greg Cato and I discussed how maybe we could find an application, a clinical application for nitric oxide in this, uh, at that time, obscure field, which was the, the field of uh, leg ulcer. I was not thrilled. I had never seen a leg ulcer in my life. Uh, I did not want to do it. And then uh, they made me do it. And uh, I don't know if I say this here, but I remember talking to a dear friend of mine and uh, I told him I was doing a clinical trial in leg ulcer. And he told me, Katerina, you will have the cubitus ulcers before you can finish the trial. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what Dr. Z said earlier about uh, you're a zero or a hundred, you went from, I'm not sure about leg ulcers to you're, you're the queen of leg ulcers now. I mean, this is the, true. Yeah, I cannot do things. You're the world well. expert on this. Well, I, I for sickle cell, I, I, I don't think anybody has seen more leg ulcer than I have. Uh, uh, that is true. Uh, I have seen hundreds of patients with leg ulcers. So, as you know, this is uh, somewhat a uh, uh, complication. When I first did my survey, of all the providers in the United States, I asked all the doctors, how many patients with leg ulcer do you have? And everybody said, Meh, maybe one, maybe two. So I got the 1% uh, response. But when I asked the patient, and we asked 700 patients at NIH, do you have, about you ever had the leg ulcer? We found 20%, 18% of them have had the leg ulcer. That does not speak well of our physical exams. Exactly. Smart guy. People don't look at the ankle. If you don't ask the question, and sometimes the language is not there. I recently gave a talk on a clinical trial at my own institution, and one of my own patients, after the talk, came back to me and said, oh, that's what I have on my leg. It's a leg ulcer. I thought it was a sore. So if you don't have even the language, I think the word ulcer does not translate well for our patients. They think of a gastric cold. You know, I think we need to yeah. find a better way of communicating. Well, that, that's our word of the day. Hopefully we can help clear it up a little bit. So you said something that caught my attention there. So a patient came in who had a, a leg ulcer or sore and had been treated with nitrite. Yes. That was somebody else saw them and put them on sylvadine cream or put them yes. on sodium nitrite cream. Because you do that sometimes for burns and these things look like burns and, and it worked really well. And, and so then to the nitric oxide people, they said, it must've been the nitric oxide. That's pathway. right. And let's, let's look into that. And then you guys did a phase one trial and now you have a 
huge R01 looking at this. I yeah. do, I do. I do. That's again because the pharmacy at the NIH was able to make the cream for me. So I had to, I met with the pharmacist that needed to make me this cream. And so we, we, we talked about how I wanted the cream and they made it. They made it. I mean, this is not commercial available. They just made the cream in-house. And um, yes, and now I do have the phase one was completed and had very good results. And now I'm in the middle of a phase two trial. And just for the patients out there, the clinical research moves in stages. So a phase one trial just looks at whether something can be tolerated or is toxic or is potentially dangerous. That's a phase one trial. So you're not seeing if it works. You're just trying it out. Usually you start out low dose and go higher and higher and see if there's side effects and if it's tolerable. That's exactly what we did at NIH, the phase one trial, starting very low dose. And then, uh, you know, if you see that safe, you go a little bit high, a little bit high, a little bit high. Then you pick a dose. And that's the dose that then you try in a phase two trial in which you actually have what we call a placebo. So that the half of the patients get the actual product, the cream in this case, and half of the patient get uh, an substance, just the, the cream without the sodium nitrite to see again if we have any more side effects and then you start looking for effectiveness. If you see some hints that it actually helps compared to placebo. And that's what I'm running now um, at the Montefiore. And again, when I went to Montefiore, uh, they said, well, we have very few patients with leg ulcer. Well, it's not true. I found 115 patients that have had the leg ulcer. So the patients are- In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Wow. But you see, Mike, as patients' life improve in length, you know, they get older and older, as you know, this complication of sickle cell disease, unfortunately, the vasculopathic complication, the complication of due to the abnormality in the blood vessels, of our patients, unfortunately, tend to increase unless we do something when patients are really young, you know, so that they don't develop when they're older. So, and that's really my lifetime mission is to make sure we do something when, when people are young so that when they're older, they don't have the end organ damage. So doc, Dr. Minetti, I've got to, I've got to ask you this, you know, you, the, the, the patients in the Bronx, the thousand plus patients who are fortunate enough to be seen at your center are lucky, but not everybody has access to a comprehensive center like the one you're running at Montefiore. For those patients that have less support, doctors who may be more busy, less informed, how does a discussion around leg ulcers look like when you're talking to your patients? When do you start introducing the concept of leg ulcers are a problem? How does how do you discuss this complication with patients? What do you tell them about it? What I think everything starts from uh, a good physical examination, honestly, uh, and a good uh, medical history intake. You know, I have developed uh, what I call the uh, sickle cell intake form, uh, which is uh, a form that I give to all my patients to fill out where I list all of the complications. One of them is leg ulcer. And I have a, a picture of a leg and that shows where the ulcers, you know, are. So that, that's how I start my uh, conversation. And uh, 
The second point that I always make with the patients and with the other physicians is that the appearance of a leg ulcer is an indication that something is abnormal in the blood vessels. So it's a sign of a vasculopathy, but instead of not seeing it because it's inside and hidden, it's there, it's outside. And also a leg ulcer is the ultimate end organ damage because basically the skin is dead, it's necrosed. So to me, that's what the leg ulcer is. It's a window into the vasculopathy of the patient. And I don't know if people realize that the first leg ulcer occurs around the age 18, 16 to 18. Even if you see a patient at 50, he has had the first leg ulcer when he was 18. And I can tell you how many heartbreaking stories of uh, uh, girls that couldn't go to prom because of the leg ulcer. And I have to say some of my African patients at NIH, we had lots of African, they couldn't get married because of the leg ulcer. So the implication of a leg ulcer go really far. So there's the problem of the ulcer itself and the pain and the disfigurement and you don't want to wear shorts or a, a prom dress. But then it's a it's a sign that your blood vessels are damaged. You're not getting good because any one of us could get a cut on our leg or a scrape or tissue damage, and it would just heal up because the blood flow is good there. The cells come in and repair it. But if you have bad blood flow, then it's just going to fester and get worse and eventually have skin breakdown and infection and uh, then the infection is going to make it worse. Exactly. So the damage, like you, you said it correctly, very well. So everybody gets little, you know, scrapes or a bug bite, but the people that are predisposed to the leg ulcer will develop the chronic leg ulcer. So uh, about 50% of patients report a very minor injury, like, uh, as I said, a bug bite or they hit the corner of a piece of furniture, something that wouldn't have caused any problems in, in uh, somebody that has a normal blood flow and healing uh, ability. But for that specific patient, because he was predisposed to it, that you know, resulted in a very difficult to heal ulcer. Now, many of these ulcers heal, and I can see only the scars so, you know, when I see the patient. But that scar tells me, Katerina, you have to pay attention to this patient. You really have to double down, look for other signs, occult signs of vasculopathy. Do that echo, look at the progenuria, make sure the liver is okay, do the MRI because this patient needs more. And, and you've done that um, as studies. I, I mean, we're going to talk about some of that today in our um, red blood cell research review, but you've... Uh, done that and shown that people who have leg ulcers have more pulmonary hypertension, have more kidney disease, have more um, other complications of sickle cell because the blood vessels that aren't working to fix that leg sore are also not supplying the kidneys well or are um, getting uh, the, that problem is developing because you have high blood pressure in the lungs or lots of hemolysis or things like that. Yes, and I think it's important, Mike, though, to understand that this occurrence does not happen at the same time. So they will develop them later, okay? So it's not necessarily happening at the same time as the ulcer. So the ulcer is like a red light that tells me yeah. follow up, follow up this patient, you know, and, and it will develop it. 
sooner than the yeah. others, but maybe not at 18. You know, he will develop when he's 35. If I don't intervene today, it will be too late. And so how do you intervene? I mean, it, you're doing uh, sodium nitrate on the sore itself, but how do you intervene to fix those other things? Hydroxyurea, transfusions, uh, new medications? All of the above, but the first thing is optimization of care. So uh, simple things, you know, many of patients may have leg swelling, you know, many patients with leg ulcers have swelling and the swelling is not just due to the ulcer. Many times it's due to cardiovascular disease. So I send to the cardiologist, they get put on a diuretic and guess what? The ulcer improves because the venostasis is improved. Just an example, many patients have a very low hemoglobin. You put them on hydroxyurea or maybe on voxelot or oxbrida, the hemoglobin goes up, hemolysis goes down, the oxygen delivery improves, boom, the ulcers may improve. Maybe they have obstructive sleep apnea. That night, their oxygen goes really low. You treat the obstructive sleep apnea, the oxygen level improves, the ulcer will improve. What I always tell my patient, you cannot heal the ulcer if you don't treat the patient. The ulcer is just a part of the patient. And that's the philosophy. Now, many times I'm not successful. I don't want to say I'm always successful. Those are you know, a wound that has been there for years and years, it might not be possible to heal it. But also telling the patient, look, we're going to have to live with this. And I think it's helpful. But do you, you get aggressive about it. You treat the local wound and you say, exercise, eat right, Eating. get your vitamin D and your zinc up and zinc. get on hydroxyurea, get on oxbrita. Um, optimize your sickle cell care. So it will fix the sore and maybe that's a good motivator to do it. It but, is, uh, it is. And the zinc is very important, by the way. And the um, yeah, uh, food intake, you know, we need a good protein intake. If you go to the wound meeting, because now I go to wound meetings, they talk about nutrition and healing all the time. And I think nutrition is one part of sickle cell that we have not explored enough you know, how to improve nutrition. Our patients tell us this all the time. They say they, they started drinking alkaline water and drinking beet smoothies. Chlorophyll they start saying stuff like we, we drink beet smoothies, we've increased our produce and vegetables and fruit. And um, I feel better. We hear this all the time, but we're not, we're not studying nutrition at all. The, the thing that frustrates me is that we have though, I mean, we know the benefits of vitamin D or zinc or, but they're not routinely used. I mean, I, I think I saw you at a paper about pyridoxine and hematologica this week. Is that right? V uh, vitamin B6. And uh, yes, that's, that's, that's something we haven't used, but uh, it looks like it's very helpful. So, and, and we've used it in other neuropathic pain conditions. So it makes sense. But uh, we need to do more and more. Yeah, I, I think we need to do the sickle cell shake or whatever. Some yeah. <laughs> that has all the nutrients. And we know that every time we check for a nutrient in a patient with sickle cell disease, we find them deficient. And I do think there is a problem with the gut absorption. You know, uh, I've always thought that uh, the microvasculature of the villi, you know, this, the gut where we absorb micronutrients gets worse and worse as patients age. And why not? So most likely they don't even absorb you know, the nutrients, they need higher doses. Think about Dendari. You need to give them 15 grams, not milligrams, grams twice a day to have some effect. 
that's a large dose. And I think it's because the absorption may not be optimal. Wow. I, I mean, I feel like we could have this conversation all day, but I, I, I you know, I want to, I want to keep track of our time here and I want to, I want to make sure that we get a few more important questions before we jump to the next segment, which is going over some of your literature that you've contributed, I wanna, I wanna ask you, Dr. Maniti, we are obviously in, actually it's your era, the dawn of combination therapy. This is your title from your invited editorial. Yes. What is your vision of how sickle cell disease is gonna look in America over the next decade? And tell, tell us a little bit about your hopes and your fears. Yes, we are at the dawn of combination therapy. And I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, we need combination therapy. As uh, we all know, and has been already eviscerated, sickle cell is complicated, so many pathways. We would never dream of treating cancer with one drug only, because we know that one drug would never work. So combination is essential. And usually when we look at combination therapy, and I, now it's where I am glad that I am an oncologist by training, we look at drugs that have non-overlapping toxicities and different mechanism of actions. And for the public, you know, non-overlapping toxicity means that I will use one drug that has as a side effects, I don't know, mild suppression, I will not combine with another one that does the same side effects. I will use something that does different type of uh, adverse events so that they don't uh, um, increase the risk for the patients. And then that have different mechanism of action so that uh, we can capture all the aspects of sickle cell disease. So ideally, we would have one drug that decreases the hemolysis, one drug that decreases the adhesion, and another one that improves the redox you know, potential, and uh, all of them together. One thing that is peculiar about sickle cell is how its behavior changes over time. So it is, to me, clear by now that the, it, it is very important to adjust our combination therapy as the patient ages, because it is not unusual for a patient on hydroxyurea especially to have no complications until he reaches adulthood, and then the complications start. So when I think of combination therapy, I think not just at the same time, not only maybe at the same time, but also sequential, what I call metachronous, so that maybe you start with one regimen, and then as you observe the beginning of one complication, you adapt to the patient and change the combination therapy. So I think what we are, I, I think changing therapy will be as important as initiation, initiating therapy. And before we had no choice, you know, I, I always tell my patient we have three, three ways of treating sickle cell disease, hydroxyurea, transfusion, bone marrow transplant. That's it. And I go from the uh, aggressive to the most aggressive. That's the way I present the treatment to my patients. But now, now I can talk about many other therapies, at least three more. And that makes it a little bit more complicated for both me and the patient to understand. And if we want to reach this shared decision-making approach to, to care, we're gonna have to really find a way to communicate better what are the indications and side effects 
effects of each of the new drugs. Unfortunately, we know very little about these drugs. I think the future is bright, don't get me wrong, but it's a little bit more complex. And as I think about the providers of the future, I think that um, they're going to have to be very knowledgeable and up-to-date in order to be able to um, integrate all this information in a plan that makes sense. That's a great point that, yes, there is all of this new information. There's all of this new data. And it's going to be important not just for the providers, but even the patients are getting hammered with new information, new data, all sorts of things. There's so much misinformation swirling around in the middle of all of this that it's going to be really hard to find out what's true, what's factual, what's accurate. We're going to really have to put some thought into that as well. I feel like we're like our leukemia colleagues were in the 60s and 70s. You know, they started, they had one drug that worked a little bit, then they had another drug that worked a little bit, then they had four drugs. And then they said, what, how, what if we put them in different combinations and in different orders and, you know, find out patients who have a little bit different disease and treat them one way and treat this other group another way. And over decades with lots of good studies, they found a way to use just those small number of drugs and really get great outcomes. And so I feel like maybe we don't have all the tools we need yet, but we're getting there and we just need to figure out how to use them right. And that's going to take a lot of studies, a lot of work a lot of patient participation and really thoughtful designs. Yeah, I think collaboration, if you want the word for the day, maybe that's what should be, collaboration and communication. I think this is to my, <laughs> the ability to, and I know you and uh, Amar are really great communicators. So um, I applaud you for communicating this to our patients. Thank you. Yeah, no. And, and that's what those leukemia docs did, right? They started these collaborative groups. They got just about everybody in the country on their studies and they, you know, quickly answered questions. Is this better than this? Should we do this before this or after this? And then got to a point where it really worked. So but They were disciplined. You know what I mean? They did not have, I mean, and I think that's something that we need to teach ourselves some discipline and maybe put aside our ego and say, this time we're going to run this trial, you know, and everybody gets on this trial. We answer this one question, then we answer the second question. And I think this is the challenge that we benign hematologists face moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And when we're, when we're dealing with a disparities disease like we are, um, we really can't have ego at the table. There's, there's not enough space for that. Dr. Minetti, thank you. Thank you for all of your contributions, for your ongoing contributions. Thank you for the service you provide a huge number of sickle cell warriors in the heart of the Bronx. Um, we are so proud to be friends and colleagues of yours, and uh, we appreciate you so much for spending some time with us today. This was great. And having read your CV today, I don't think we scratched the surface. So we're going to have to have you back on to talk some more. <laughs> you know, everybody who knows me, they know I love to talk about sickle cell. They always tell me they cannot shut me up. And because I think it's important that we keep on talking and screaming. Uh, and uh, because uh, our field needs warriors. And so I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be on this program. Thank you so much. Don't go too far because we've got another segment coming up for you, Warriors. We're going to talk with Dr. Minetti about one of her contributions to the scientific knowledge of sickle cell disease. Stay tuned.
All right, Warriors, it's time for our Red Cell Research Review segment with Dr. Manitti on, um, who is the director of the Adult Sickle Cell Center at Montefiore in the Bronx and a legend as far as uh, sickle cell goes, but certainly for a very specific complication that we've been talking about called leg ulcers. Now, Mike, I don't know what, I don't know if you understand what you've gotten yourself into here. I'm, I'm going to warn you. I, uh, I've been working with Dr. Manitti on, uh, on a project related to her expertise in COVID and sickle cell disease. And there's one thing that she's told me probably 900 times in the last four months, and that's, you got to stare at the data. You've got to stare at the data. So I really hope you've, advice. I hope you've spent some time staring at the data that you're going to be talking about <laughs> because Dr. Manitti definitely has. So without uh, delaying this any further, Dr. Mike, you, you and Dr. Manitti, go at it. Awesome. So I, I uh, really appreciate having you on to talk about this paper. I, I've done a lot of these research reviews on my own, but it's so much better. I think you get so much more depth when the author is here to discuss it as well. So I, I wanted to talk today. We've talked about a lot of different kinds of studies. We've done some basic science. We've done some clinical trials, done review articles and historical articles, but this is a special kind of article where an expert doctor who really knows more about treating some um, situation than um, almost any other doctor in the world tells us how I treat something. And so this paper is from the American Journal of Hematology from 2015, and it's called How We Treat Sickle Cell Patients with Leg Ulcers. And we have the first first author with us, Dr. Manitti, and you wrote this with Dr. Cato, so another you know fantastic expert in sickle cell disease. And I I, I like the way this uh, paper starts out. It gives a little bit of background, and then it goes into I think three or four patient cases, um, and and sort of explains the situation. So you have a 49 year old with um, leg ulcers and a 27 year old from Ghana who had leg ulcers and a 40 year old who, who's been having wound care for a very long time and has had ulcers for, you know, now 25 years um, and, and sort of describe their sickle cell disease. They have low hemoglobins, they have high LDHs, they maybe have tricuspid regurgitation. So really a lot of other hemolytic signs and, and problems of the, the blood vessels. Um, and then you talk about, you know, how common is this? And you go through all of the studies and, um, and there's a few things there that I think are interesting. So maybe we should stop there. So you mentioned earlier, yeah, you asked doctors and they said maybe 1% of my patients had uh, leg ulcers, but then you found it's much higher. It's maybe 10%, 20%. But I saw in Jamaica, where they have very good data, 75%. Yes. What's going on there? <laughs> What's going on? Uh, yeah, so it is Jamaica and um, uh, Brazil and uh, some country in Africa have uh, uh, among the highest uh, incidence of uh, leg ulcers uh, in addition with sickle cell disease. The reasons are not uh, completely uh, clear and they have improved. I have to tell you that even in Jamaica, when I talk uh, uh, to Jennifer, the, um, the sickle cell director, uh, the rates have improved. Not surprisingly, many studies have shown an association with socioeconomic status and nutrition and leg ulcers. So I don't know if you noticed the title 
of the paper. And uh, I think uh, Mark can tell you how uh, much time I spend looking at the title. So in the title, I say how to treat the patients with sickle cell disease with leg ulcer. And, and I think that's a cardinal point of my therapeutic approach, that we need to treat the patient with the leg ulcer and not just the leg ulcer. And in fact, in that, uh, in many of my papers, and I'm sure in that one I did too, I, I divide in two sections, treating the patients with leg ulcer and treating the leg ulcers. Those are not the same thing. They go together, but they're not the same thing. And, and hence the-, uh, the oh, That's an amazing, that's an amazing distinction. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so the first thing we need to do, as I said, is treat the patient. And that's why there are the, what we call clinical vignette of three very real individuals with many other complications of sickle cell disease, including, you know, leg ulcer. And the reason was to highlight the different types of presentations of the ulcer. So one of those young men, he was this 27-year-old from Ghana, he had what I created the, this word, stuttering leg ulcers. So they have the leg ulcers that are not very big. They come and go. Usually they recur every year, every two years. So they usually the patient knows when the ulcer is coming, sometimes in a specific season. And for those patients, if we promptly, promptly initiate the therapy, local therapy, uh, we do have very good resolution of the ulcer. So, and that's the 27 year old from Ghana, but also that is an example of a young man who was able to have a very good life. He was a DJ uh, because of, uh, the ulcers were small. We were um, attacking them even before they um, started. And by attacking, I mean, as soon as he had pain at the site of the ulcer, because that's the initial presentation often is intense pain, which is like having a heart attack in your leg. So often patients will go to the emergency room with leg pain, but it's really an ulcer that is about to start. And so if we start immediately by wrapping the, the wound, making sure it doesn't get infected, elevating the leg, you know, doing all the things that patients already know what to do many times, but many times they don't. And we have to tell them what to do to prevent the ulcer from uh, um, starting in the first place. And so uh, that's why the example of that particular gentleman that really comes to mind. The second woman was uh, a four-year-old or something woman who was on chronic transfusions and had these huge leg ulcers. And the reason why I put her there is because despite being on chronic transfusion, she had the leg ulcer. And I want to drive the point not to start the willy-nilly transfusion on everybody who has leg ulcer because you may only cause harm by increasing the iron load and not any benefit. And, and that's why I, I talked about that woman who actually had a good outcome because we aggressively did a surgical procedure on her, uh, which resulted in the healing of that wound after about 20 years. But also that patient had an underlying osteomyelitis. So osteomyelitis is an infection of the bone. And it's clear that you cannot heal an ulcer if you don't cure the underlying osteomyelitis. So again, it's the same concept of looking deeper. 
So what I recommend as a workup for this patient is to look for DVTs. Having a DVT will increase the venous pressure and an occult DVT was often what I found when I was um, examining patients whose ulcers were not healing. You treat the DVT, the ulcer will will heal. So the DVT is a venous thrombosis and a blood clot in one of the veins, and then the blood can't get out of the leg very well. Exactly. So you have blood kind of pooling there. You're not getting good blood flow. So things don't heal well. Yes. The DJ, he was wearing boots that were sometimes yes. too tight. And so you had to make some changes around he that. He was wearing high tops without socks. And, uh, <laughs> and I told him, no, you know, just you cannot wear that. You have to protect the skin because the longer uh, it takes to heal, the thinner is the layer of epithelium. So the, wound, the, the skin that overlays a healed ulcer is very, very thin and fragile and needs to be protected at all times. And then this, this 40-year-old um, woman who had the, the really chronic ulcer, she had tried everything. Everything. I mean, she was on methadone and oxycodone because she had massive pain from this. She had tried surgical procedures. She had tried maggots to get rid of. Yes, it. maggots. Yes, yes. And, and, and nothing was working. So, so what, what finally did it? You treated the underlying infection. Right. That, was, treated, a big, and that was a big part of it. It took, for, it took a long time. You know, we had to go and do a bone biopsy, you know, to diagnose the osteomyelitis. And so again, it was a collaboration between us and an excellent orthopedic surgeon. We were able to make the diagnosis and we treated for months with antibiotic until the infection resolved. Then we did the skin flap that resulted in the healing. And that's another point that is very important for our patients, our providers. Sometimes I see in the community that patients go to see a vascular surgeon and he doesn't know about sickle cells. So he will proceed with a skin graft on a patient that is not ready. You know, you have to prepare the patient for the skin graft. You know, what I do, I put them on a short transfusion for the skin graft to support, you know, the new skin being applied over it. You can't just do willy-nilly, you know, and then I keep them on transfusion for a little while to facilitate the taking of the graft. So it's not, uh, um, I think if you think about it, it makes sense that, uh, and the wound has to be very clean. There can be no infection. Otherwise, the skin graft is going to fail. The vast majority of skin graft fail. You know, it, it reminds me when I was a medical student, I did a vascular surgery rotation and it, it was a terrible rotation. Um, we would go around and all of the people had diabetes and they smoked cigarettes and they would start with sometimes ulcers on their legs or sores on their toes or infections and um, the blood flow was bad. So these things didn't heal. I remember some of the patients had had this maggot therapy, which sounds so gross, but the maggots actually go in and kind of eat dead tissue and clean things up. And, um, and then they put them in ether and all the maggots would come out. It was, it was really, really terrible, but uh, the, the, the disease is probably somewhat similar. I mean, you have this chronic blood vessel problem and really poor wound healing and, and chronic is there a lot of overlap in the in the research of 
sickle cell leg ulcers and diabetic ulcers and diabetic vasculopathy? Yeah, most of the overlap it so far has been with the venous ulcers because of the venous insufficiency that, that we see. So people who get the the blood clots and get yes. blockage and, and then they yes. get ulcers, even though they don't have sickle cell. Even though it's a good But a, a, a huge difference between the diabetic uh, um, ulcers and the sickle cell ulcers in the diabetic ulcer is an arterial insufficiency. While they're in the ulcer in patient with sickle cell disease is really not done. It's not an arterial It's, it's complicated. Yeah, it's very different. And the pain. The pain is what separates the sickle cell from any other ulcers. And it's so intense that many of patients don't get the adequate skin care because of the pain prevents them from the breathing. So a very simple intervention that I do in my clinic when I was at NIH, I had the capability of giving them a dose of IV narcotics before the debridement. In the current situation, I don't have that. So I have the patient bring their pain medication with them, and, and we give them pain medication before we start the treatment, and then we apply topical lidocaine. It is crucial that the wound is, is clean. And as I said, often when they go to a regular wound center, they're in a high you know, they can't wait for the lidocaine to take or they don't even think about it. So the patient will say, no, no, I cannot have the breathing. It hurts too much because it does hurt. It does hurt. These are uh, little things that uh, that I think are each of them is very important to achieve the um, outcome that we have. I can tell you in my clinical trial in uh, um, that I am running, I have a two to three weeks, which are called run-in. This is a period of time in which we just provide wound care without any application of study drug. And we have had about 20-30% of the patients that healed during that time and they could not proceed to cream application. Which, which is great for the patient. Fantastic for, for the patient. I had this woman <laughs> from Jamaica that came in a wheelchair. I also want to... Um, really talk about the deformities that the feet of these patients have because of the wound. Uh, what happened is that not being able to use the foot because it hurts so much at the ankle, they, they have this frozen ankle and then some ankylosis of, of the foot so that some patients, especially this one from Jamaica, I have to say, that have never received care, they come to me on a wheelchair. And my first thought is that have you had a stroke? They said, no, no, I, I don't have a stroke. I just cannot walk because I my feet are too deformed to, to walk. So what I do with my patients, you know me, you know, you can picture me doing it. I, I make them go up and down on their tippy toes. We do exercise. Let's move those ankles. <laughs> you know, I you know, one thing that we haven't discussed is you know, we talked about the, the disparate differences as far as Jamaica having more leg ulcers. What other predictors of leg ulcers are there? Are there other clinical predictors? Are there certain types of sickle cell patients that tend to get leg ulcers or is it unpredictable? There are. They definitely are. Yes, yes. They're different. So patients that have very low hemoglobin, patients that have very high hemolysis, those are really the patient with leg ulcers have very few acute pain crises. And sometimes we don't see these patients coming a lot to the hospital because they are not the one that come in and out because of pain. 
and uh, uh, because they have a very low hemoglobin, five, six range, and very high retics and the very high amylase. That's a very big predictor of having a leg ulcer. The other thing is very tall and thin. The BMI is really always very, very low. I can tell a leg ulcer patient when they walk in my clinic, they are these tall men with very skinny legs. And that's because there isn't that much subcutaneous tissue in, around the ankle to support you know, their blood stream. And then because they don't use that much, you know, the, the fulcrum and the Detail muscle, so you will see that they have very poor musculature. So, you know, the back of the leg, you know, where uh, uh, we have the muscles, it's very small, very atrophic. This is the uh, generalization, but uh, pretty accurate. Tall, thin, low BMI, poor nutrition, and very little subcutaneous tissue, very anemic, and not uh, big users of uh, the emergency room. That's a really good point again for our warriors that we try to emphasize a lot and, and not just warriors. I mean, even physicians, that pain is not a pre, pain is not a predictor of severity. And in, 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 as far as, you know, we always talk about, there's no such thing as not severe sickle cell anemia. Even That's if you're right. not having pain, um, you, you still are dying 30 years younger with chronic organ damage and things like skin ulcers. So don't let anyone tell you that sickle cell anemia is not a severe thing to have. Absolutely. I'm so glad, Damar, you say that, that this is uh, so true. And another point I want to make, though, is that the size of the ulcer has no relationship with the amount of the pain at the ulcer site. So you can have a teeny tiny wound that causes an incredible amount of pain. And so I, I, I just want all the physicians out there, the providers, to know that they should not dismiss a small wound. That's always a small because it's extremely painful. That's really good to know because I would have made that assumption. I would have assumed that the bigger the ulcer, the more the pain, but that, that, that's really good information. No, actually it's the opposite. What I've noticed in my research is that as the ulcer becomes more and more chronic, actually the nerve ending get kind of fried and that they have very much less pain you know, when they have this big ulcer, the chronic ulcers, and, and there is this neuropathic damage. So if you ask the patient, they're not going to volunteer, but if you ask them, do you have any tingling in your feet or in your toes? And they will tell you, yes. Do you feel the side of the toes? No. So there is this neuropathy that ensues. And as the ulcer becomes more and more chronic. So we, we got a little bit away from the paper, but oh, I think sorry. we covered a lot of, no, no, it was good. I think we covered a lot of things that are in there. So I just want to mention in this epidemiology section, some things we talked about is people with more hemolysis have more disease and things that protect you a little bit like alpha thalassemia trait. Um, there, there's less leg ulcers um, than, than if you don't have alpha thalassemia trait. Um, and then the next section is really complicated. It gets into the pathophysiology. So sort of what's going on in the body. And I, I think one thing we can say is, you know, we don't completely understand it. And I think that's the first sentence of this section, but um, there's so many things going on. You have this hemolysis and then that's causing oxidative stress. And um, you have a lot of inflammation and cytokines, and that's activating a lot of inflammatory response that uh, causes swelling and pain there. You have, you mentioned the, the DVTs and the, the venous insufficiency that contributes to it. So 
and it, it becomes sort of a vicious cycle once it starts. Uh, one thing leads to another. So an infection could start an ulcer, but also if you have an ulcer, bacteria can get in that starts an infection that causes more inflammation. You get more sickling and hemolysis in that area and you have more oxidative stress and, and uh, more tissue damage. And so it's uh, not completely understood, but there's a, a lot of contributors to the pathophysiology. Yeah. And that's what I tell people is that, that often in medicine, you, you need more than one thing, you know, to go wrong. And uh, this is exactly the case. You know, there is a predisposing phenotype, you know, with the hemolysis, the low hemoglobin, and then a contributing factor and then maybe a little venous insufficiency and then an in the infection and then the you know decrease in oxygen delivery and all of these things together contribute to the uh, the ulcer formation which is the problem but to me the most important thing is the lack of healing that is what the problem is because you might have an ulcer if it heals it's okay it's just the lack of healing that is the main problem. What a fantastic discussion this is, and um, what a what a great dialogue that you guys you guys have been able to have with these warriors watching. But Dr. Mike, what do you think? Should we uh, give Dr. Minity some of her afternoon back? I think so. I, I guess one thing I would want to touch on is what can we do about these ulcers? Your study, sodium nitrite, and then take care of the patient. All of the optimize nutrition, exercise. One thing I want to say, since I hope the warriors are listening, I have did a, a study that, that seems not an important one, but I think it, it is, in which I found out that if you go to see a specialist later than eight weeks after the ulcer has started, the uh, outcome is worse. So what I, I, I want to say is that go and see a, a wound specialist immediately. Do, do not wait too long because we have found that more than two months after the ulcer has started already, it's more difficult to heal uh, the ulcer. And a similar study was published in France. And that uh, gives us a researcher confidence that uh, is true because a completely different population, they found exactly the same thing. So an ulcer that is older than two months or three months at the most becomes harder to, to heal. So they have to present as soon as possible to the wound. So get it, get in early, keep it clean, elevate it, elevate. and then do systemic therapy. So hydroxyurea, how about the new therapies? Have you have you tried these for leg ulcers yet? The Endari, the Adacvio, the Oxbrita. Yeah, we have uh, um, uh, we have looked at the um, Oxbrita, the Voxelator, uh, because it makes sense since we know hemolysis is the major determinant of vasculopathy and leg ulcer. It made sense to look at the Voxelator. And uh, I am just writing up a small series of patients that had uh, a big improvement during the HOPE trial uh, in their leg ulcers. And we are actively working on a prospective trial to enroll patients with leg ulcer and see if Oxbrite can improve the healing time. That's great. So there, there you have it, how, how Dr. Maniti treats uh, leg ulcers. This was great discussion. Thank you so much for, for being on. And honestly, that's the only person you'd want to be taking that advice from anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Really great. Thank you.
Thank you, everybody and warriors. Be sure to um, check out the Montefiore site. There's a lot of cool things happening at Montefiore in regards to sickle cell disease. You've got a young new investigator with you named Susanna Curtis, who's fantastic. Recent publication and blood advances on uh, certification for marijuana and sickle cell disease, which is a hot topic. We'll definitely link to those new publications and uh, We'll hopefully get you back on the show, Dr. Manini, because like Mike said, we haven't even scratched the surface. Well, it's been a pleasure. You guys are great. Thank you. That was a great episode, Dr. Z. It's always good to talk to Dr. Manini. I learned a ton about leg ulcers today. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, I've, I've been working with her, as you know, on this COVID-19 and sickle cell disease paper, and I, I've learned a lot from her. Um, she she's she's definitely accomplished uh, a lot for sickle cell disease warriors beyond the bronx uh, i mean for uh, worldwide and she does not rest on her laurels it's all energy and passion truly i mean i went and visited her at montefiore and and i saw the way that she runs that center and and it's fantastic um she, she's really an example for all of us um so I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to share some time with her today but, but besides that, man, I'm, I'm always glad to jump on this with you and learn a little bit more from you. You, you always seem to add to my knowledge. Um, so I appreciate you for that. Thank you. In return, I mean, I learned so much from you. So it's, it's uh, always fun to do these. Anyways, warriors out there, if you guys think that this episode was good and uh, you, you know somebody who could learn about sickle cell disease, share this, subscribe, um, rate, rate the show. Let us know how we can make things better for you. Um, keep living well with sickle cell and uh, hang in there. Be safe. Thanks, warriors. We'll talk to you guys soon. Peace. Peace.